0: Welcome to That Stack of Books, an author's interview edition. I'm Steve Cher. Thank you for being here. We've been on a bit of a hiatus. Hope you will join us as we gear up again this Thursday, July 23rd at 7.30. We'll be at Town Hall, Seattle for a special onstage edition of the podcast. Nancy Pearl, Katie Sewell, and I, and you talking about books and the readers who love them. I'd Walk With My Friends If I Could Find Them is Jesse Goolsby's first book. He's written a number of short stories and essays. He is an Air Force officer, as well as a teacher of English. He's working on his Ph.D. right now. Goolsby's book explores the role of war in the lives of the combatants, families, and friends. We talked at Third Place Books, Lake Forest Park. He was in town for a reading. I'd walk with my friends if I could find them. Was your Ph.D. or your master's dissertation?
1: It was a, well, I was basically had written it over the past five years, and when I had the opportunity to go to Florida State University to get a Ph.D., the going-in position was that I was sitting on a a book or a dissertation. It wasn't completely finished, but I was pretty confident and and pretty dang happy to have a completed book uh, before I even started the program and um, I have a great agent that has been with me for a number of years and it was a a real surprise when the book was picked up so I had uh, some of the best news an author could have that the the book had been picked up but simultaneously I thought well there goes my dissertation (laughs) so now I'm back to a square one in a very positive way very proud of the book Um, but now I'm in my dissertation year so I'm writing the second book uh, to fulfill that requirement.
0: You're um, writing, you have a lot of writing, short, short fiction, something that was from the book that uh, appeared in a lot of s- small literary magazines. Is that where you found a, an agent? You can see where I'm asking. I'm just curious.
1: Yeah, a- absolutely. Um, and that's where I gained my confidence, too. Um, I finished my master's degree at the University of Tennessee, and literally in that defense, of the, it was a collection of short stories and some scholastic work, um but my dissertation committee basically said okay what do you, where are you going to publish these now and and i hadn 't been asking the right questions i didn 't know and so through their guidance and through trial and error, um, I started placing some of the some of the chapters that appeared here in different form and some other work um, in in literary journals and personally, I needed that I needed that confidence and validation that came with um, proving to myself that I could get into literary journals, that, that what I was writing was publishable. And that was a really big boost for me and subsequently led to a, actually a couple of agents reaching out and, and entering those discussions, which, again, very, well, I was very, very lucky for that to happen. That's great.
0: But a great story for the writers and all of us, yes? Well, yes, there's whole There, <laughs> there is, <laughs> yes. Uh, th- um, your characters join the service in part to get out away from their small towns and their lives and to find something new, the offer of an opportunity that the military offers. Was that your story? Um,
1: probably a little bit. Um, I went to the Air Force Academy largely for sports. I'm not from a military family. I am from a very small town. And so part of the notion of escaping that uh, small town, you know, anything outside of our county boundaries was this mystical fantasy land of success. Um, at 17, growing up in a small logging community, that's just what I personally projected. I remember graduating with a uh, with, uh, peer, and she was going to Louisiana. And I had never really thought about Louisiana, but I remember just thinking, she was going to Tulane, which is a great school, but I remember just thinking, oh, the, the mystical, beautiful Louisiana. I, I just, I could not get it out of my head that it wasn't here. It, it was somewhere else. And my story is that I was a small-town basketball player, and the Air Force Academy was a Division One athletic program and sure i was enticed by the the ideas of honor integrity which i largely found to be true at that school but the initial impetus to joining the military had very little to do with patriotism it had a lot to do with pragmatism where and ego where can i go to school play basketball i'm not from a wealthy family where could school be paid for and those types of things and i do think you see that reflected especially in the three protagonists that join the military for very different reasons, but largely for pragmatic reasons for the next step. What am I going to do after high school? This is an option where I can get taken care of. And two of the characters pre-9-11. So it, even for them, it's more pragmatic without
0: a war going on. Now you brought up patriotism. Uh, where did patriotism or where does patriotism arise for you? Then I'll ask about your characters.
1: Yeah, I think for me, the, the big transition happened while I was at the Air Force Academy. Um, quickly, I learned that playing basketball there um, wasn't the end-all, be-all. It was a great activity to do, but you're not going to survive a service academy unless you really want to be there and you believe in the mission that you're going to be doing. You, you wouldn't last three months uh, in, under those conditions. Of which they're trying to break you down and and build you back up not only as the consummate teammate but also to be in a deep thinker but also one that is committed to and this is a tricky phrase but defending the country it's become especially tricky in, in the last 12 years but while i was going through it was a notion that you better believe in or or why are you, why are you there and so I really appreciated the Academy giving me the latitude to be uh, a deep thinker in a variety of subjects, but also um, kind of teaching me that if I wanted to serve the country, it wouldn't be easy. That was always there from day one, which I appreciated. But also, um, I better want to do that. If, if I didn't want to do that, if I, if I didn't want to make the tough decisions that came with being an officer in the United States Air Force, I should just choose something else. And so I think all of those things, the friendships I built, the ideals that they held up, that I found to be largely true. There are always some bad apples, and we've gone through our problems at the Air Force Academy. But I really bought into the fact that I was with a group of people that, by and large, believed in honor and integrity. That was very attractive to me
0: still absolutely
1: yeah absolutely i'm i'm an active duty lieutenant colonel i'm coming up on 15 years of serv 14 15 years of service and it hasn't been easy i mean i don't think it's been easy for anyone associated uh with the military or families or communities that have to tackle our ongoing and our conflicts our nation's two longest wars that have have occurred over the the past almost 14 14 years um but I've found in the, in the service in the past 14 years that those ideals, again, while not perfect, by and large the people that we ask to fight our nation's wars um, are honorable, deep-thinking people that want to do the right thing, even in circumstances where they're, that are almost impossible to make the, a right decision.
0: Jesse Goolsby's book is I'd walk with my friends if I could find them. You know, it occurs to me there is an There is an officer character in one scene in the book, a kind of a a wise and world-weary officer character. Um, Is that you? Is that you popping up in the book? (laughs) I don't think, not at all, but I did feel, you know, as I was
1: writing this book, focusing on three enlisted individuals. um, and, And again, out of the 15 chapters, we only have two set in combat. You know, one of the things I really did is, is reach out to... I haven't served in Afghanistan, for one. I'm an Air Force officer. I'm not involved in the Army operations. But I did reach out to a lot of my Army brothers and sisters that had been there. And they gave me some very pragmatic advice, and that is, hey, these people would be with, with an officer that would be challenging them, would also be friendly. And so I thought, you know, we're dealing with realist fiction here. Um, I should have somebody as a, a counterweight Um, about the decision making
0: process you you talked about deep thinking so in the deep thinking uh, when you were in school um, is that when you started writing and and imagining these the lives of these people who were if not so in the Air Force they would have been under you the people you'd be working with
1: yeah, I think, well, I'll answer that two ways. One is I was one of those cadets that wasn't going to make it six months. I, I was ready, ready to leave my freshman year at the academy. It, it was overwhelming. My mom had passed away two weeks before I, I landed at the Air Force Academy. And I had an English professor pull me aside and, um, and basically said, I can tell you're struggling. Um, here's some Hemingway. Go read some Hemingway come back you know keep up with class but go read these novels and we're going to kind of do an independent study thing because i can tell that you need some you need just something else uh, involved in your life right now and it, it was incredible in our time a collection of short stories by by hemingway um and uh for whom the bell tolls and and i subsequently read everything else but those two works at that 18 years old i needed the humanities to to save me and to really round me out at that time. So that was one thing on and, and why I stayed and why I really appreciate the humanities education as well that I received there. Um, but also, yes, to answer your question more directly, being an officer really a- appealed to me um, from an early stage. I wanted to be the one making the tough decisions. I, and, and my friends, I, I, I fed off of their energy and their willingness to accept the fact that there was never going to be a cut-and-dry solution in war or even supporting war and the culpability that comes in that. So even if you're not on the front lines, um, fixing the aircraft that do, um, do the damage during war, I, I found that very attractive just in mining those areas where um, there's not a clear right or wrong, but that we need good Deep thinking, and I hate to use this word, but moral people that are willing um, to give the difficult orders and take responsibility for that. In effect, leading people as well.
0: Dax, Armando, and. um, Wintrick. Wintrick. Moral people? These are your characters. Were they moral people? Are they moral people?
1: Absolutely. I, I think, yeah, I mean, I think that's what the book's about. I mean, I think it's about people that are struggle to come to terms with the end axis of emotion and and trauma and what I mean by that is what we what we have asked of our service members um, of the pa- of our two most recent conflicts and ongoing conflicts are, are just incredible we're asking young men and women to go out where they don't know friend from foe and even on humanitarian missions they don't know, or an office building in Kabul, there is no safety. It's not the jungles of Vietnam. It's, it's not the moral imperative of World War II. It, it is situations where we honestly don't know who's friend or foe. And so we're asking them to be prepared for everything, but also to be polite while doing it. I mean, what a strange and difficult dichotomy that we're asking the youngest people in our armed forces to to accomplish and they do it by and large with honor by and large certainly there are cases where that's that's not uh, what has happened but by and large day to day they accomplish the mission I think that's stunning and so what we see in in the book are three very different people which have come to the war in very different circumstances and have to negotiate the trauma of dealing with a couple specific situations where they have to make a decision,
0: but it's not well. I'm trying to decide whether we, we how much we give away. Um, yes, they have to make a decision. They have to live those lives. But they all. This is also a book about how the war experience. We often hear. We often read books about how the veteran is affected by that war experience. This is, this is about how, in, a, in subtle ways, how family, how friends uh, are affected before, during, and after.
1: A- absolutely. One of the, one of the <coughs> things I'm really, certainly, one of the things I'm <coughs> most interested in when I was sitting down and meditating and writing the book was the <coughs> binaries we often place and I include myself in that, even as an active duty service member, the binaries we place on veteran and the binaries we may place on their families and and communities, you're either um, healthy or damaged. You're either um, all the way in full believer or you're anti. You know, that just simply is not the case. People join the military for every conceivable reason imaginable. They stay in and they leave. Simil- and they have hopes and dreams and fears that are individual and subjective to everyone and often we'll get their stories as you've mentioned we'll get the veterans we'll get the veteran stories often in short clips which are unfair to the whole person but we'll get their story what we don't hear about as often as we should are the families and communities the families and friends that in my opinion show an equal but more difficult to distinguish heroism and courage. Listen, it's very easy um, to denote heroism and courage on the battlefield. We've seen it since the Iliad, and it plays in our minds, the people saving their comrades in arms, doing heroic things in battle. It's It's a lot more difficult to understand and appreciate the heroism and courage that takes place from a spouse, a son and daughter, That get up every day in the face of trauma, or or a a service member that needs their help to get through their day, their specific hopes, dreams, and fears to get dressed and do their very best that day. We we don't know how to acknowledge that as a society, or we're not good at that yet. We're really good at the veteran that has been, been been damaged and is learning to walk and showing an incredible resiliency. We're not, we're, we're, we struggle to name and identify the spouses and communities that help that person every day.
0: Or that don't.
1: Or, or that don't. I mean, I, I think this is the point, one of the main points of the book, right? Is that human beings are fallible. And, and, and they're not just fallible while they're in uniform. And uh, a soldier is a human being first and always. They may be a combat veteran, they may be serving in combat, but they come home, they're going to listen to Metallica or root for the Mariners, in this case, or not. Oh, they're going to...
0: The Giants.
1: Or the Giants, yeah, my <laughs> case, the Giants. Um, they're going to think Barry Bonds is a hero or a villain or or mess up their taxes or not. And so really, I hope the novel breaks away from this binary of veteran mean all they're dealing with is damage. Or... All they're dealing with are spouses or a world that doesn't understand them. Certainly that can be the case, but I hope the book illuminates that there are cases where that simply isn't true, where there are spouses that do step up to the plate and try everything they can.
0: Your characters go through some trauma outside of the battlefield. As you say, it's just, it's just a couple of scenes in the battle and, and in, in the country. Um, one of the characters uh, is enticed to become a speaker, a, a motivational speaker. Um, Is that you?
1: (laughs) Is that me? It, It certainly isn't me. But what I find interesting about that idea is one of the exact things the novel is trying to get away from or illuminate is the code words we use or the binaries that I talked about and how we describe people. And so I did find it interesting that one of those characters might be enticed to become a speaker to use those exact code words in his behalf. Right. In large part, Steve, because it
0: works. Right, even because that is not how he presents himself as somebody who is an injured veteran, and that's not what happened.
1: Absolutely. A- absolutely. His, Armando's specific case, although he is impacted by war, but his physical wounds have, have nothing to do with, with the conflict. But because he encounters people that will respond to that type of an injury versus a domestic injury that anyone could possibly encounter. Steve, I, I think it's just really difficult in his case to navigate a world where one injury could be considered heroic and celebrated, and the other injury could be forgotten.
0: Yeah. I don't get much judgment from you as the author in that. Is that correct? Uh, you, yeah, you, no. You're not judging him for that choice he's making.
1: Oh, not. I think it's a... An incredibly human and, I won't even say fallible, but sympathetic decision. Listen, the characters, if, if the book, if I've done a half-decent job with the book, it's a book about yearning and human connection. It, it, it's first and foremost about human beings, regardless of where they live or if they've served or not, wanting, yearning for people to understand them, for them to connect to, for them to love. And I think those are universal things re- regardless. And so, of course I wouldn't judge Arm- Armando for trying to seek human connection where he can find it.
0: One of the last books I read was uh, uh, David Morris's The Evil Hours. Do you know that book? I know it. So that's a book about some of the binaries you're talking about. How do you look at that book? It's a book about dealing with PTSD and then dealing with how people view somebody who's dealing with PTSD.
1: A- absolutely. I think it's a phenomenal book and one that, boy, I mean, talk about specificity, talk about really tracking and really investigating the deep consequences of what it means to go through trauma. We've called it different things. David does a great job, so I won't replicate it here, but we've just called it different things through the ages. Um, And so the way that I respond Responded to that book is Let's have a talk Really it's a book about being human Surely we encounter this with veterans That we've asked to do very difficult things and inc- Include kill people on the battlefield But there's a full range of traumas uh, Domestic traumas where people experience PTSD I think that book would be a great companion read Only is as much as that Really what he's investigating too Is what it me- what does it mean to be a healthy human that can connect, that can deal with their past, that can understand and appreciate an identity that has changed due to trauma. And I think what he gets at it, there aren't any answers, but it's a universal
0: thing, not just for our veterans. The professor who gave you Hemingway, why did Hemingway help? I think I
1: remember in our time, Specifically, a collection of short stories um, about being in war, and co- the Nick Adams stories. The Big Two-Hearted River is in there. The End of Something. I think what it it did for me at that time was it showed human beings first. I I had encountered great war literature, The Red Badge of Courage, um, among others. The Naked and the Dead. By that point, and The Naked and Dead does some of these things, but the but a lot of war literature, even successful war literature, deals with a close proximity to what I would call conflict literature as opposed to war literature, meaning um, or battle literature in scene bullets are flying we 're trying to navigate the chaos of what 's right in front of us. What in our time does then the big two hearted river is about moments of repose in the the crazy thing about life is there are no guaranteed moments of repose. I don't care if you're a service member or not. You, you wake up every day. That's a courageous act because there's nothing guaranteeing you that you're going to find peace or comfort in that day. And what in our time showed me is that Hemingway, just the aperture was wide open on that human being. It wasn't a closed bullets or flying. It was somebody trying to tune in or meditate to that moment of peace or repose Fishing, grasshoppers, nature—trying to find those moments where he can recognize himself again. That's a human struggle. That's a memorial.
0: Don't you have—is uh, it Dax helping uh, Wintrick do it, or is it the other way around? Uh, when they're out in combat, uh, trying to find that moment, right, and listening to the wind. And yeah,
1: I, I think Wintrick arrives without giving too much away. Really, in country and is immediately disoriented. Everything that he imagines he will find in Afghanistan, a dry desert, bullets flying, are not the case. He, he's, he's in a lush valley in a humanitarian mission, but the tension still lives, once again, because we don't know who friend or foe is. Even in inoculating children, the tension of being fired upon or, or bombed is, is there. And so, absolutely, the seasoned soldiers, and this is true, how do you find those moments of sanity in an otherwise insane moment. And Dax and Torres both, while still questioning their role in the war, ask, breathe. Find that space that you, they let him talk about his hometown. I mean, that's one of the most important things they do in this book. It, are people are listening. Just the act of listening, I think, helps, can help, be one of the tools to, to let people find their identity and hope.
0: When you started writing, were you... Uh, the, the short pieces that some of them became this novel, were they a way for you to um, understand what Afghanistan and Iraq meant to this country?
1: Absolutely. Like many service members, I'm watching CNN. I am the citizenry. I mean, we talk about the military-civilian divide, and I, I, I don't laugh that off. There are some serious issues there. But I'm sitting in my living room watching the news just like everyone else, wondering what um, a possible deployment will be or how long these wars are are going to last. One of the things that really affected me, because again, I have not deployed to Afghanistan. I've supported some things from a distance, but I I, I have not had that Army-Marine experience. Or Iraq. Or or Iraq, or or Iraq. Um, Yeah, again, my role has been a little different in supporting. but I had a colleague one day at the Air Force Academy. I was a professor there for a couple of years of English. And we we're having lunch and we we're talking about the ongoing wars. This was 2008, a difficult time in, in both wars, very, very difficult. And we we're trying to understand, you know, we, we felt guilty here. We were in Colorado Springs. We weren't deployed. We, we had lost friends. It was a, just a difficult time to understand what was happening. And he leaned over the lunch counter and said, You know, I had a buddy come back from Iraq. And the, the one thing he struggled with more than anything else was how to touch his children. He he didn't understand how to navigate the role of father, or how if he should just hug them or if he should ask for their permission. And and you're smiling that this has a seminal role in the book in a scene. That was the one of the impetus for me to I, I thought that was such a believable horror because I was a new father at the time. And equally creatively, as a new writer, I thought, I wondered if I could earn that scene. I, I wondered if I could tap into uh, a character's yearning for connection so effectively that, that that scene would be earned.
0: But why writing it? What was it about the writing process that had, it, it, it sounds like it rescued you a little bit from leaving the academy, but also, it's, does it was writing the way you were processing
1: I I think yeah, I, I think so. I I think it was a process of um, an odd. I don't want to call it survivor's guilt. I mean I'm. There's fair, I I think I, yeah I I think there was just a lot of emotion where I have my own family, I don't want to be away from them, but I'm proud to serve my country, and you so and I have brothers and sisters in arms that are away from their family and and I was able to return to my family every night and so uh, certainly I would categorize that in the, in the personal realm but there's no doubt that if you want to call it therapy or investigation or just uh, a way to investigate my feelings about how everything was going um, was to uh, again turn to fiction in writing as well as essay uh, you know I did a lot of nonfiction at that time but but the book, while, while emo- there's a lot of emotional verisimilitude in the book, um, there were equal parts, this role of really trying to create something, out of that emotional truth. Um, or I would have written memoir, you know, or I or I would be writing biography of the servicemen and women that, that have gone over. So it's a complicated answer in that it was personally perhaps healing or an escape for me, but equal parts on the creative side, an investigation of what I could do as a writer.
0: Mm-hmm. But at some point you decided you wanted to be a writer then, as opposed, because you, you, know, you went for basketball and, <laughs> and other things. Yeah, I think
1: I made a transition about six years into my service from being an aircraft maintenance officer to having opportunities in communication, Uh, academics but also communication one of the great privileges of my service has been to work at the Pentagon where I worked in the office that basically handles all the human resource and social issues for all of the Department of Defense it's called personal and readiness and I, I helped with communication and advisement in that office and they're in charge of such difficult issues as sexual assault prevention and response suicide prevention, wounded warrior care, military children, education. All the things you're criticized
0: for in the military.
1: All the things you're criticized, absolutely, and sometimes appropriately. But it was, I'll say my experience there, was that we have so many people, again, not perfect, many mistakes, but it was incredible to be part of an organization charged to fix it. And they're with no easy answers. And that certainly seeped into my, into my book in every imaginable way, as you can see. So, yes, I mean, part of that was being choos- choosing to be a writer on my free time, but also choosing to be a writer and advocate while I'm serving, um, helping with communications, helping uh, organize events, helping to craft legislation that might help people.
0: Yeah, there are no easy answers in this book. And if pe- people should approach it knowing that it's, it's a tough book and the characters, there's no magic wand at the end of their lives. What have veterans told you as you've traveled and talked?
1: Largely the response has been extremely positive. Um, I'd say the... Has m- anybody gotten mad at you for some reason? Oh, yeah. Okay. Oh, absolutely. And you know what? Um, you release... Um, a book, any book, it can be nonfiction or fiction. You release that into the world, and I don't get to come with a book to your doorstep to explain intention. And thank goodness that's not the case. Every reader gets to have a subjective experience. And it has, not be, it has been very, very minor. But of course, some people would take excep- exception to um, a writer saying that with creating characters that question what we're doing. Um, I don't have an accurate response to that, or uh, not an accurate, but an appropriate response to that, except to say that um, I think I've done justice to my characters, and I think I've allowed them to live on the page and question their experiences appropriately. But by and large, an incredible positive response, because for the most part, again, personally, what I've heard, these people are human beings first. A lot of veterans have said, you know, I love these characters because I'm a human being first. Yeah, I serve. And some of my service will always live with me. But every day I live outside of the service, I'm creating new memories as a human being that aren't tied to my service. And I think that's one, the room the rooms that I investigate here are a lot of those rooms where the war has impacted them, but they are also making new decisions every day as human beings. And that's been a, a wonderful response, I think, to get.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? Because that's not the message that a lot of the Vietnam War vets got. And that has been a, not the message that um, culture churns. So, this is, you, you are going for, it takes us back to David Morris in some ways, a different, because uh, these are the longest wars, they're still going on, there's still people deployed, more people being deployed this is a different way to think about that service, isn't it?
1: Yeah, it certainly is. And it demands a lot of us as citizens. Um, individually, this book demands, I think, a lot of the reader. And that's on purpose. Um, because we're looking at the long view and long lives. And, and just in, you know, everyday life. It, you know, a veteran experience, it, we may like to see it in 30-second clips, but that is not... that is no way to capture an individual life heroism cowardice and everything in between father mother son daughter you name it all those are individual lives that, that change from day to day so to get a 30 second clip on any news channel regardless of political persuasion is not doing justice to an individual that's living an individual life with growth and pain love, and sorrow that all of us experience. And perhaps I'll just repeat the moniker that we are you. The veterans are you. Yes, they've been asked to do different things in their lives, but they are human beings that deserve the full scope of a life instead of the 10-second soundbite.
0: All right, good. That was the janitor. He was cleaning up, but you (laughs) came through. Thank you, sir. Thank you. It's great to be with you. Thanks for listening to That Stack of Books. Don't forget to join us at Town Hall Thursday, July 23rd at 7.30. Nancy Pearl and I and Katie Sewell and you talking about books. Hope to see you there.